Are you a master of audience engagement? You know, when you're with a group of people, have you got the ability to do this, to, to hold them, to keep that attention, keep that focus going? Here's the next level. Have you got the ability to move them? Woohoo! Keep them all moving forward. Here's the next level. Have you got the ability to change them? Now, this session is all about communicating to a group of people, and it's a very special session because it's an interview. Well, it's not really an interview. It's a rapid-fire discussion with three of the greats in the communication space. That's Brad Sugars, Wilner Warm Business Coach. It's Jeffrey Gitmer. He's considered to be the king of sales, the world number one in sales, a massive influencer. And speaking of influencer, we've got Marcus Sheridan. What an incredible communicator he is. Whoa, world number one web guru, incredible presenter. And that's what you've got in store today. So a couple of things for this. Have fun, I did. Take notes, I did. Implement the learnings and start to change the people in your environment. Let's do this. Okay, guys, I want to discuss today audience engagement from both a marketing perspective and a communications perspective of you speaking to a small group or a large group. So audience engagement. Where do we start, Marcus, with that? Oh, geez, this is my favorite subject, I think. I mean, I would say that um, uh, I'm going to have to share some stories. Today. I'm sure we're going to if you don't, do we're a, a, a lot of stories, right? Yeah. Um, early on, I had to, as a, as a speaker, I had to make a choice because my natural style is, is to always go into the audience. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, of course, because everybody is very heightened when you're in their space and you have a chance now to put yourself on the same plane as your audience, which I think is what we're trying to do in marketing. It's what we're trying to do from the stage. You know, stage separates us. We get with the audience, get on the same plane. Now suddenly everybody feels more like equals. I'm with you. You're with me right now, right? Special. But doing that, I, uh, I saw that about 2% of feedback forms, and any speaker will appreciate this, said things like, he invaded my space. He yelled at me. Oh my God! Um, uh, I I just I you know I just didn't like how he just got up, you know, and asked me questions. But the other ninety eight percent of the audience says stuff like, "That's the best presentation I've ever heard." And so I had to make a choice. And I know you know Jeffrey, Brad, they've done the same things, right? Because if you want to be great, you have to be willing to lose a few to gain. The many, and that's the power of audience engagement. Nice starting point. What about you, Brad? Then, what's your initial thoughts on audience engagement? Um, as a coach, I immediately go to questions. If I'm going to engage people, I have to ask them questions. But I'm also, as a speaker, one of the my favorite tricks as a speaker is I leave the word off the end of a sentence, so their brain, whether they say it out loud or not, their brain has to participate. And so I'm very participatory and I, to the point where I demand engagement. I get them at the start of an event to raise their hand, even, you know, nudge the guy next to you if he doesn't have his hand up type thing. So 
I'm a demander of engagement of my audience. I don't just want it. And the same as Marcus, I, as soon as you said that, I go into the audience, like all three of us wander around. We're an AV guy's nightmare because <laughs> we just walk everywhere in the whole dang thing. But I, I'm big into questions, big into questions to make them, whether they think or actually answer it. And I'm also big into making them make notes and chat at their table. Like I often find that you won't get engagement from a whole group until you get engagement at a low level. So if I'm seeing a group struggle, I'll make them make notes on their own page and then I'll get them to talk about it at their table. Or if they're doing okay, go straight to discuss it at your table. But I'll rarely go to getting hands in the room first because then you'll only get the three or five people that are used to talking all the time mm. wanting to, to talk. So I, I think of whole audience engagement when, I, when I'm thinking that. How do I get 100%? It's like my first two questions when I walk on a stage are exact opposites so that I get 100% say yes. Because you're either yes or you're a no on that question. Did you, did you, were you here, are you here as an employee or are you here as an owner? You know, which one? And Jeffrey, what about you? I lead with a story or a question. And if I start my talk, I start in the middle. I don't thank everybody for being here. I don't go through the, you know, that kind of crap. How many of you, when you're driving around in your car, listen to the music that you grew up with? Now, I already have my hand up. Mm. And so that gives, but I don't force participation. All right, everybody, stand up. Seriously, stand up. I don't want to stand up. Like, why are you <laughs> telling me to stand up when I don't want that, to? That's because you're aggressive. See, a nice Australian I'm accent. Assertive. I'm assertive. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't want to be told what to do. I just want to be asked my opinion. So I'll say, how many of you? Or I'll say... I'll, I will come out with no question to start out with and say, so I'm flying into Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and a plane is three hours late and it's raining. And there's no ramp. You have to get out of a plane and walk down the steps. And I get out of the airplane, and the first thing that happens when it's raining is my hair gets all ruined. And then I'll look at some bald guy and go, you know what I mean? And so now I've, I've engaged, and often in the front of the room is the CEO. So sometimes I've unknowingly engaged the CEO or some big shit in the company, <laughs> and now we're, I've already made fun of this guy's no hair, but I, I self-effaced. I use self-effacing humor to mm. start out with. Mm. It's very smart, and yeah. So the story or the question will engage that audience to begin with. Now, I went back to um, uh, forced participation. There's also stupid first lines. Amen. Go, go, what do you mean? I did it uh, an event with, uh, uh, I, I owned a couple of schools in the 80s, and uh, I went to this thing where you learn how to sell student enrollments. And the guy comes out and he goes, selling is an art. I go, no, I'm in the back of the room, there's 200 people. I go, no, it isn't, it's a science. And people are like, who's this guy? But it, you can't start out with something that's totally incorrect and expect the audience to follow you for the next two days. And crazily definitive, too. Oh, selling is an art. Like, bullshit, dude. You know. It's a repeatable science. If I learn what questions to ask, and I didn't want to pontificate. I just said, no, it's not. It's an art. It's a yeah. science. I know that by asking a lot of questions, every audience member gets their own lessons. Yes. You know, whereas if I, if I put up 32 bullet points, 
I'm trying to give them my lesson. If I'm asking them a question, they're getting their answer to that subject. And every single person in the room can have a different answer to that subject. That's why they feel like they've walked out learning a lot more than they would have if I had have just put up my 32 bullet points sort of thing. Jeffrey, does that first line apply to marketing messages that put out as well? Absolutely. Because this is audience participation as well. Marketing tends to pontificate about how great their crap is. And usually it ain't that great. Um, I have been blessed to do a lot of helping people sell. So when Singular Wireless, or excuse me, when Sprint came out with Fridays are free, that was a big thing because I stopped marketing and I started selling. And the marketing message was 20% of your, of your bill has gone away on Friday. I said, no, 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 that's not the message. The message is Friday is the least profitable day of the week because salespeople tend to lack, slack down. Now you can get them to double down on making appointments for Monday. And they're like, whoa, that's a good idea. So instead of Fridays are free, 20% savings, that was the marketing message. It was Fridays are the least profitable day of the week, and this is a day to incentivize your salespeople to double down on their effort. Very subtle, but marketing tends to have marketing messages, not selling messages. If marketing would spend half of their time going out on sales calls, they'd be a hell of a lot smarter. And most never have. No, ever. Most never have. You know, when people say, I'm not sure what to, you know, let's say a marketer, I'm not sure what to produce content about. First questions is always, when was the last time you spent any time with someone in sales? Yeah. And it's usually, you know, I haven't. You know, speaking of questions, though, I was just thinking about this. There's a big difference between ineffective and effective questions. There's mm. good and there's bad questions out there. There's this dumb saying, there's no such thing as a bad question. There's a lot of bad questions. There's tons there. of bad questions. <laughs> Marketers ask a lot of bad questions. Speakers ask a lot of bad questions. And um, so one of the big mistakes that just, let's call it communicators make, because that's a marketer, that's a speaker, whatever, yeah. is asking a question that forces, that is unclear in terms of the path that the mind should take. And so if I want easy engagement, I have to present to you a question that you can quickly see the path. It doesn't mean that you immediately know the answer, but you know the path by which I'm asking you to go. If I ask a, you know, Oftentimes, speaking of coaches, right, whether it's a coach, whether it's a speaker, if they had an interaction that went poorly, it's usually a question that was worded the wrong way. And oftentimes, we'll look at that question, and I'll simply say, how many potential answers were there in the world for that question? And, of course, the answer is almost, they could have gone anywhere with it. And if they could go anywhere with it, it means you're not leading the audience or in this case, that team member, that employee, that, that, you know, or the audience on LinkedIn, whatever that thing is, you're not leading them in the right direction. You need a clear path to think, and then you might just have. Got it. Let me throw something at you as well. When I ask an audience, how many of you, when you're driving around in your car, listen to the music that you grew up with? Not only do I have their engagement, I have their emotional engagement. Because they're thinking about their favorite songs and what they listen to, and how they grew up and what they did. So I'm two birds with one stone with that one question. I want their emotion, not just their thought process. Mm. Let's look at content and context, all right? 
and the the impact that that has on engagement. So start with you, Brad. Well, okay, so we, we look at it from a mock. Well, time out, yeah. time out. That's an example of a bad question. Exactly. Okay? I was just going to say that, but the, I didn't want to hurt the, his feelings. The reason is, no, but James can handle it. He can handle it. He's good. Because if you look at that question, there wasn't a clear path for Brad to go down. So Brad has to immediately hear it and say, okay, where exactly does he want me to go with this? It's not definitively sure. So he's going to take something and... The way, and what will happen next, if he's allowed to answer it, is he could potentially go in a direction that you completely don't want, which you're going to have to then come back and ask it again in a refined manner, because now you're going to see the mistake or the error in the first question. It wasn't a clear pass. So I know that was unintentional, but it was perfect timing, because that's a real example of what it looks like, and we all, we all and, do it. And perfect to include... In yes. this session. Yes. So everybody's got a demonstration yes. of it. Yes. So that's all cool. Okay, but as a coach's coach, what is the difference between content and context? Now I'm going to get a direct answer. As a coach's coach, which is, what you, which is who you are as a person. So I'm going to go back a little ways then to answer the question in a roundabout way. I wanted to be a lawyer when I was a kid. Right. And one of the things, and I think it's because they get to speak all day, it's, except then I learned that they don't. They get to read text all day and write stuff and all day. Uh, well, you would fit in perfectly. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Australian and, I yes, anyway. But one of the things that first started understanding is you never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. And one of the keys to being a great coach is using questions to allow someone to get to the answer you already know they need. So, and the same in a sales scenario. So, you know, I, I do a fun thing with people where I write up on a flip chart the eight, eight of, of hearts. And then I get someone in the audience to turn their back. They don't know what it is. And after about seven questions, amazingly, they arrive at the eight of hearts. And I see how genius I am. And it's the same with um, getting people to arrive at a predetermined answer that they need. And in sales, it's that you need to buy this thing. In marketing, it's that you need to raise your hand and say, hey, I'm ready to buy that thing. Coming back to context versus content, I'll, I'll use a marketing way to answer your question, okay? My marketing way is that the medium is the message. Um, there was a, a, a book written on that subject, and unfortunately when it was first printed, it was printed as the medium is the massage. <laughs> and, uh, like, yeah, that's going to sell a lot, dude. But the point of it is that if I write an article and I put it on bradsugars.com, it gets this much thing. If I go out and I put it on jeffreygittemagot.com, it gets this much. If I go out and put it on entrepreneur.com, it gets this much. So the, the medium being the message, the context being the medium and the message being the content, you know, and, and you can put that into, did I put it as an article or an ebook? Did I do it as an ebook or a podcast? Did I do it as a... You know, the, every different methodology of that thing. The moment you put it into a printed hardcover book, all of a sudden now it's, oh my God, that's genius. It's in a book versus, hey, yeah, I did a speech on that one time. So I'll answer your question that way. You'll probably have a totally different way to answer that question. Well, you know, I, I did have a, I would say, we had to be careful about the intention of questions. Mm. 
especially as great communicators, right? Because Spider-Man here, with great power comes great responsibility. When you really learn how to be an incredibly effective communicator, you can take people where you want them to go. But that's not always where they should go. And this is where we have to be very, very careful. There are definitively times when you absolutely should know where you're headed with the question in the sense of you know what the answer is. As a speaker, generally, you should always ask questions with intention because there's a clear path where you're trying to go. But if you have, let's say, an individual come to you, let's say it's a team member, and their personal life is falling apart, you don't know where you're going to go in terms of this conversation. Now it is true discovery and curiosity. And so sometimes the coach doesn't know the end game with the question. Sometimes you absolutely know where this needs to go and you got to help them get there. Now, the key to me too is the fact that you're asking questions because too often in life, what we're going for is the, that's right, you're right, you're right, you're right, James. You're right, you're right, you guys are right. I'm wrong here. What have we done? All we've done now is forced our ideas because we're great communicators. We didn't induce any light bulb moments. The great ones induce light bulb moments. What they do is they ask the question in such a way, just enough so that the individual that's hearing it says, you know what? I know what I should do. And then Jeffrey here says, all right, what do you think? And the person says, here's what I should do. And because he's so good, he says, Jeffrey in response says, I agree. That's exactly what you should do. And that is the sign of a great coach. That's a true light bulb moment. And any great communicator, coach, leader, you can gauge yourself in terms of transformative skills with how many light bulb moments do you induce on an average basis. You can literally track them. And you'll be shocked at how few we do because we're too often going for a, that's right, that's, that's what I gotta do. Have you made any mistakes on content, specifically on content? What are the biggest mistakes that you've made with the content that you've put out? Well, I think there's a lot of, uh, let me give you one of the foremost mistakes that we make in all types of content. You can see it online, you see it in social, you see it on stage. And that's we try to appear smart, and oftentimes we don't even know we're doing it. If somebody once told me, Marcus, it's dumb not to dumb it down. And at first I was like, I don't know about that. But then I realized, what are we really trying for? Like, what are we striving for? Am I trying to look smart on stage? Or am I trying to look smart with that article that I'm publishing? Or am I seeking that magical thing that we call communion? Because the moment you let go of looking and appearing smart, it's like the number one feedback. I know you've seen this before, because Jeff, you especially, you work with a ton of, like, you've been a mentor to a ton of speakers over the course of your career. I know you see it all the time. You see that speaker and they're like, what am I doing wrong? And you can just see they are trying to look smart on stage. They're trying, like, literally, and they don't half the time even know it, but they're trying to look smart and prove they belong in that moment. You let that go and all of a sudden your authority just elevates so very much because now you've achieved that again, that magical thing we call communion. But what's that got to do with content, the looking smart bit? Is that because, an attitude thing? Because, yeah, because when you 
write or communicate or say it with the purpose of look at me, look how I said that, look how I showed that, then you will fail to gain that trust element with your audience. I was taught by Brad actually on some training initially in Action Coach. It was about, look, speaking is not about imparting knowledge. It's about drawing out. It's not about what you teach. It's about what they learn. It's their experience at their end. So let's, let's just have a look at the impact of emotions and how to, how to get to emotions quite quickly with your audience. I don't want to put a time frame on that, but quickly. And how do you know when you found it? My turn? Yeah. Humor. If you can make them laugh, you can make them buy. Principle eight in the little red book of selling. And so I'm gonna immediately go out and engage people because when I engage people with humor, it's relaxing. When it's self-effacing, it's comforting to the other person. And I wanna make sure that I'm engaged with them enough to where they know I'm human. When you go out and say, I've been doing this for 27 years, I don't care. I, I don't, you know, there's so many speakers that pontificate on how great they are, I never introduce myself, ever. There's no reason to. And they just hate you more anyway. They don't give a shit about yeah. me. You use they a video don't. to introduce yourself. Yeah, I do. I, my daughter introduces me, you'll see. 14 years, she was 12 at the time. It's the best, because someone's gonna come out and mispronounce my name. But the, the challenge is, I'm a content person. I write a lot of content. But contextually, if I don't blend humor, into that, I lose them. Is that how you bring context into it? Yeah, a lot? I'm a funny guy. He's very, you know, and I'm thinking about this. I was, I was talking to Jeffrey. This is the first time we, we physically met. met today. Yeah. And um, Jeffrey wrote I never liked the, it, by the, 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 the Red Book until today. <laughs> until today, but now we're, we're good buds. Uh, he wrote the Little Red Book right when I was getting into, uh, out of university, into selling. And when I, when I started reading the little red book, I also, he had a, a video series that he did mm -hmm. with it. My initial thought was, that's a funny dude. Like, immediately I liked him because he had this, just, he released the typical, I've got to, uh, again, i got to look smart or i got to do this. He didn't take himself too seriously, but he, you could tell he knew his stuff, right? But he was really, really funny. So I found myself cracking up. And I had this different appreciation now for the Red Book. And that's the other part to this. It's like, you want people to watch you and that will dictate the way they read your stuff, the, the way they consume your content. So I consume Jeffrey's content differently because of those videos that I watched so early on. Interestingly, when you engage someone with humor, my humor makes you think of your humor. And so I'm telling some story and you're going, yeah, well, let me, let me tell you about my kids. Let me tell you about my haircut. Let me tell you about my plane yeah. ride. And that creates engagement. It's, in storytelling, there's actually a name for it. It's called a topper. Like, oh, yeah, well, let me tell you about yeah. the time I you know, came back from the moon. <laughs> so I, I think that there is something to be said for understanding how you create that contextual engagement. How do you do that? And the answer is you have to do it in a manner or a style that's not where you're not trying to elevate yourself to something that you're not. Now, I'm going to give you a classic example. I went to the National Speakers Association where they have two rooms, one for the speakers and one for their egos. <laughs> and oh, that's so good. 
And a you woman, been there, James. But if you had been there, you'd been like, "That yeah. was really good." Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Clearly, you like it. <laughs> so I'm in, telling you, man, it's I'm a terrible place. The, to I'm in Bermuda or someplace, and there's this convention. This woman gets up on stage and she starts to give her platform performance, and in the middle of it, she forgets where she was in her memorized talk. Wow. And everyone's like real uncomfortable, you know, and finally she gets back on and they applauded her. I wanted to boo her. Like, lady, how do you have the balls to give a memorized talk <laughs> to a bunch of people who are your contemporaries? Just speak from your heart, you'll never forget. I saw her do it again. 10 years later, same main platform, same forget where she was, I'm like, Go away! Never, That's never crazy. come back here again. You're a disgrace to the business because so I, you're, you're, you speak from your heart, dude. You never forget. But I think that's the difference, though, between a speaker and a presenter. You know, there's there's a big difference between. I, I put a point up and I tell a story. That's all I do. I'm a storyteller. That's that's how I teach. I tell stories, and most of the times. When I first started out, the stories were about my clients because I hadn't done a lot. And now the stories are about my businesses of what we did and where we made mistakes and all of those sorts of things. And um, I find that stories connect emotively where, you know, whether it's a funny story or a serious story or a poignant you know, story. Yeah, I go, I go to a lot of stories and, you know, where I talk about why I started in business coaching, business people that were going broke. And, you know, when you tell that story, about a specific client of our photocopy business that didn't come back as a customer because he went bankrupt. And, and the number of people in the room who you can feel gulp at that point because they like, they relate to that thing. But going back to your question about what biggest mistake on content, I'll tell you my biggest mistake on content with what I do. And that is I've spent so long teaching people about how to grow their business, but I never taught them how to buy business coaching. So the content was really great content that helped people not buy anything that I sold. If that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. if it'd be you just teaching sales in your content, but not teaching how to buy a sales training course or how to hire you exactly. as a speaker or that sort of thing. And so I think that, and it's not just in my coaching business. In our other businesses, we would, in our cleaning business, we do a lot of content on how to clean things, how to get stuff clean, how to do all that sort of thing, but not how to choose a cleaner or how to hire a, a, the best commercial cleaners. So, Which is, this is a big topic of yours anyway. It's one of the big five, yeah? The they ask you answer. And that's a common mistake in business. Now, how important is that in in the emotions and engagement part? Having the prices readily or how this is how you get it. How important is that in creating the engagement with the whoever's there? Well, I mean, we can't argue with human behavior, right? And our behavior today is when we're on a website. We can try. That's right. yeah. <laughs> and many do. And we don't sell much. Right. Right. <laughs> we're on a website and we're looking for cost and price information and we cannot find it. We get pissed. That's what we do. And so we all accept that as truth. Every business even does. Then comes all the buts. But here's all the reasons why I can't talk about cost and price. Right? Instead of looking at all the reasons why we can't talk about it, we have to say, 
It's pretty simple. Okay, what can I talk about? Even a financial advisor who has all these compliance issues mm. can talk about investing, can talk about costs, can talk about mm. anything he or she wants. You just can't always answer it exactly how you want. One of the biggest keys to winning trust online is being the one that addresses the subject. You don't always have to give exact answers to everything. This is the part that people misconstrued. Like, ah, Marcus said that I gotta put my price on the website. I never said that. Never said that. What I said is you've got to address pricing. Gotta address it. Because if you don't, you're gonna lose them. And there's a very good chance they're not coming back. It ain't 1995 anymore. You don't control the sales process. So those talking about prices or how to buy the product, yeah. does that increase, you're saying this categorically, this is increases engagement? There's no question about it. It dramatically increases engagement across the board on the front end when they're doing the majority of their researching and vetting of companies. And so, you know, what's funny about this is, and this is a kind of a big subject, during the marketing phase, we should talk about cost and price early in the vetting side. When we don't know them, they know us. Once we meet with them and we're presenting to them, we talk about the price last because that's the proper way to do it in an actual sales presentation. So it's very fascinating. So marketing, when you don't know them, you want to do it on the front end because this is one of the first questions they have. It gets them interested in you and your company. That's the engagement that you're looking for. They say, you know, I think I'll play. I'm interested in you guys. You actually talked about something that nobody else is willing to talk about. When you get to the sales part of having the actual conversation, now that's not your lead. You don't lead with price. That's at the end because we go through the journey beforehand. And this is, again, the part that people sometimes confuse. Let's realistically say that the customer says, can you send me a proposal? Hmm. How often does that happen? All the time. Okay. So I'm sales. I'm not marketing. I'm, I'm not smart enough to be a marketeer. I'm just a sales guy. <laughs> and I tell my customers, when you send someone a proposal, the object is to engage them again. Leave out the price. What do you mean? Just don't put the price in the proposal. And the guy will call you, or the woman will call you and say, I, I couldn't find the price. I go, yeah, I wanted you to talk about the price. And I didn't want to put it in the do you agree? Do you agree with that or disagree with that? No, that I agree with. Because strategically, that's different. Because now you're in the, the sales. We're in the, the sales. Got it. Got it. The object of a proposal is to have a return phone call. That's right. I, in fact, I refuse to send out a proposal with a price without a corresponding conversation. No. Okay. So... The average sales guy will send a proposal and three days later go, I'm calling about the proposal and I was wondering if you had any questions. Yeah, that's dumb. Just right? love the body it's language. The single dumb. dumbest question you yeah. can ask. Why not be honest and say, I'm calling about the proposal. Is the money ready? At least you're being honest. But the challenge is that person is not going to right. return your phone call. How should they, how should they do it? To drive engagement? Out, no, no, no. Do, do the phone call. Do the phone call. This oh, is how it should call. be done. Okay. I sent you a proposal a couple of days ago, and it's not self-explanatory. It has a lot of detail in there, but there's some nuance in there that talks about, that does not talk about what happens after you purchase. And that's what I'd like to spend a few minutes with you with. But I will never send a proposal to someone without having a firm appointment to follow through. I follow up. 
I agree with that, but I'm I'm one step further. I won't do a proposal unless we have a meeting for me to come and present. Exactly. We don't we don't send proposals. We present proposals. That's, but again, it's if you go back to the original discussion here of engagement, right? A salesperson's engagement, and, and I don't know if it was my first ever sales lesson or second ever sales lesson is. Never, never leave a call without booking the next call. I mean, it, it's like yeah. number one drilled into a salesperson is, is you got to do that. You must have the next thing already booked in before you finish it off. And, um, you know, engaging people in, in marketing, the f let's, let's talk about the opposite. What are the fastest ways to get disengagement of someone, right? How do you immediately turn them off. Don't provide them with the information they've asked for. Okay? Don't return their phone call. Like all of the immediate Let, disengagement. Well, if let's we can just, but hang on, if we can stop doing the stupid right. things. Be condescending. We, all right, well, look, right, our goal is to, to get them all out right now. So you've given us the oh, first I, I don't think we can get them all out right, all right. here. We don't have let's long get enough. Out. So, this is how you disengage people. What's your budget? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I have my budget right here. <laughs> how keeps you up how do you disengage? Seriously, in marketing messages as well, when you're when you uh, communicating with people, I just be friendly. If you can't have a beer with this person, something's drastically wrong. Even if you don't drink, I mean, I yeah. I want to make a friend. I'm, I, you know, when you become friends, it's it's a whole different thing. It's, you can ask anything, you can talk about anything, it's about their kids, about their family, about their health. About Being their friendly, then, and we're saying it's key to engagement. Totally. What? So, I, you know, what, what Jeffrey does very well, Brad does this very well, is they tell great stories, right? According to Ted, that's 65% of the communication that you do should be stories. That's right. And so... 74%. Well, the great, there you go. The Thanks great, for the correction. Great marketers. He's 65% in the book, by the way. That's right. Great, great marketers <laughs> tell stories. Great salespeople tell stories. They know how to integrate story. Long story. Short story. Customer story. Personal story. Right? It's like across the board, story, story, story. But how often do we really teach the art of story? I mean, you're hearing about it more, but it's still a really, really big... It's a big problem. It's a big issue. Yeah, story. What's the best way of telling stories? Raise stakes, baby. Got to learn how to raise stakes. Great stories make someone say, how does it end? I want to know. They're yeah. on the Engaged edge of their seat. Present. It's because, you're, it's because you're raising stakes. Let me give you a really, really quick example. Speaker friend comes to me and says, hey, Marcus, I have this uh, you know, bit that I'm doing. And because I, <clears throat> let me rephrase. Speaker says, I got this bit. I want you to watch it. And so I watched from the audience perspective. And what he did was, he tells a story about how his daughter comes to him and wanted to go watch uh, the, uh, what is that, uh, let it go, let it go. Yeah, what frozen. Is it? Yeah, frozen, right? And she wants, nice, nice voice. She, yeah, 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 yeah. And she wants to do the, uh, she wants to. You know the second course? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she wants to go to watch the uh, live version, right? So, he doesn't really understand how the live version works, but she tells him it's like we, we get to go there and we get to sing and it's gonna and it's gonna be great. And he says, Okay, great. And in his talk, in his talk, he says, I get there and we all start singing and I start singing. Now, 
and he sings to the audience because he's actually an acapella. And like in the bit, it's good. Like he's singing on stage and, he, and it's a surprise. But I said, the problem though is it's good. It's not great because you didn't raise the stakes. So the way we want to change this story is your daughter asks you to go to this movie with her, which is live. You don't really understand it. And so you go and you're in there and suddenly you look around and everybody's starting to sing. And you're like, oh my gosh, why are they singing? Your daughter looks at you and you're like, why are you not singing, daddy? And you're like, oh my goodness, I better sing. And I'm like, what should I do? And then suddenly, and then he starts to sing. Because now he's raised the stakes with the audience. The stakes were his daughter was going to be incredibly disappointed if dad wasn't singing with her. And so he goes through this nervousness. Now, of course, the catch is he's a great singer. He wasn't nervous about it, right? That's the beauty of story, is you've got to raise the stakes. You raise the stakes, you got your audience. Do you need to be courageous to do that? Because that is stepping, you know. Well, you like, just need to be good at it. You just exactly. need to have practiced. Like you asked, how do you tell good stories? You go to comedy clubs. Yep. You go to comedy clubs and you watch those gals and those guys tell stories, and, and that's all they do. They tell stories all night about stupid stuff that happened in their life that they can twist into a way that makes it dang funny. Yep. Or you watch TikTok videos. Like, let's, let's be real. Watch, if, if you want to tell the difference in stories, uh, watch original Top Gun and watch Maverick. Original Top Gun takes about, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds between every scene cut. Mm. So, like, the cuts of scenes take forever. New version, what is it these days? Three seconds you have to, to mm. cut from one thing to yep. the next? Mm. You know, and, and that is a big part of story that where I could have taken five minutes to tell a story t 10 years ago on stage, I better be done that story in 30 seconds or less today. Yeah. It's, it's got to be faster. You got to have more and get it. Let me throw one thing at this. I, on accident, discovered the value of karaoke a long time ago. When it first came out, it was like, Oh my God, I get to sing a song in front of people and I know the words are right there. Well, I want you to think about Frank Sinatra or Dolly Parton. They never presented a song. They perform a song. Yeah. So you're not giving, when you, when you give a story, when you tell a story, you're performing the story. You're not presenting the story. That's a bunch of crap. And what happens is you engage that person to a point where there's emotion based on your performance, not based on your presentation. And many speakers still, well, I gave a presentation, like seriously, you gave a presentation? Like pretty boring, huh? What do you mean? I mean, why don't you perform? What do you mean? Like if I have to explain to somebody the difference between a presentation and a performance, <clears throat> they don't get it at all. And You'll tell a story, you'll tell a story, I'll tell a story 500 times. Same story. You have to tell it like it's your first time telling it because it's their first time to hear it. When you're telling stories, what are you, what are you focusing on making sure that you do properly? I don't have to worry about remembering the story. I know it, I know it cold. No, but what are you focusing on with the performance? The emotional transference of my message. And how do you get the emotional transference of your message? You put your heart into it, not your head. Give us an example. Anytime you tell a story about your mom or your dad, um, I, at the end of my talk, I have a picture of my father sitting smoking a cigarette in his Air Force uniform from the Second World War. And right next to it is his coffin flag. 
So already I'm engaging people like, what is this? Well, my dad was a, you know, was a veteran and had a minor disability, but at the end of his life, which was like 50 years after the war, they sent a flag. You get a coffin flag from the government. And most people put it in a little frame. I don't, I unfurl it and it's hung on a spiral staircase in our home. So I see the whole flag. And every time I walk up and down the steps, I remember who I am as an American citizen. And I remember my dad. Now, the way you tell that determines the audience's engagement with you. Where's the pause? Where's the story? Where's the hesitation? Where's the, and if you do it 10 times, you own it. You literally you own it, but you can't do it the 11th time quickly. You have to have the pause. You have to have the intention. You have to be able to tell it in a way where the audience gets what you say. And he be clearly, I mean, you're emotional then. I was emotional. I yeah, know. That's because yeah, that's know. his... That, exactly. That's so his profession. You, you have to remember that the, the profession of the three people sitting in front of you is telling stories and moving people and educating and doing that and stuff. Get and get him to take action. Yeah. The, the one thing I focus on is about being present. I don't think I've ever told the stories... I don't know if I've told them the same way because I don't listen back to the, the, to the recordings. When I'm on stage, I know I've done a good presentation when I walk off stage and it feels like a minute, a minute later. You know, I was in the moment for three straight hours. I was there. I was just, nothing changed. I love it when I get off stage and people come, I can't believe you held my, my theory for three hours. Yeah. I, can't believe I, I can't believe how fast time went. And that's, another, that's a great movie. You go to a great movie, it's the same thing. But marketing content is almost the same. I didn't realize I was on the 162nd page of your blog. I just lost track of time reading about buying your thing. I, I, I love it when people tell me they binged my podcasts or they binged something. That, that to me means we're on the right track. They're binging what we've got. And that's it is the today world. You have to be able to let people, if people are going to buy, you have to let them binge. They don't buy anymore by a little bit here and then wait another week and then get a little bit more information and then wait another week. We don't watch TV shows that way anymore. We binge. And so when someone's ready to buy, if it's 2 a.m. in the morning, they need to be able to watch seven hours of video of me at 2 a.m. in the morning and come to that decision right there and then. Engaging them on their time frame is a really important aspect of engagement today. Well, it is. I mean, that's a BFO in itself, isn't it? Engagement happens in, in their time frame, and it doesn't have to be in person, neither. No. In no, the salespeople used to think you have to meet me in person. Now, nowadays... It's pre-recorded. They'll watch it, and it speeds up the whole sales process. I know, uh, you know, when historically in our franchise scenario, we were on a seventy-seven day average to decision making. We can now have them to a decision in twenty-four to twenty-five days because they can consume the knowledge on their time frame, mm -hmm. on in their modality, in their way. They can read it, they can watch it, they can listen to it, they can do it whatever time of the day they want. Boom, there you go. Make your decision. So engage 
allow them to engage the way they want, not the way you want. And that's why when I talked about before, you know, podcast, ebook, whatever, Jeffrey's sitting over there going, yeah, do all of them. Yes, do all of them. The, the key is the higher up the food chain you go to talk to someone about making a purchase, the faster they're going to decide. Mm. You ask any CEO of any big company, how long does it take you to decide? That's right there. Minute and a half. That's the way they think. And boom. And so don't overemphasize the fact that take your time and you know figure out what's right for you. Like, dude, you've already thought about it. You're it's already there. The so fact that you're there means they're gonna buy. Bingo. You just can't you just don't mess it up. And occasionally, occasionally something happens to you where you get feedback from the audience that you're not expecting. I gave a talk to a Fortune 500 company, and on one of the, like, the guy like ripped a page out of my handout, CEO of the company, and wrote to me, only presentation I've ever sat through from beginning to end in the last 10 years. Thank you. <laughs> Compliment? Right, no, that, would, that is affirmation or confirmation that I've done the right thing. I gave a talk to an audience about positive attitude, and a woman writes to me, I wish I would have heard this 20 years ago. Well, here's the deal, and Jim Rohn. That information already existed 20 years ago, she just didn't expose herself to it. Wasn't ready for it. Exactly, but he, there's one more thing about Jim Rohn, which we talked about just a little bit earlier about selling your stuff or whatever, getting people to buy. Jim Rohn for hours would talk about the importance of staying a student and work on yourself harder than you work on your job, and education, formal education will earn your living, self-education will earn your fortune, and then at the end, he never said, go buy my stuff. Because you're so ingrained with fixing yourself and getting yourself better. I go, I need more of this guy. And they go out, and there's tons of Jim Rohn stuff, and people would buy the whole damn thing every time. Still yeah, buying I, it. He's, I, been, no. you know, he's been gone for, what, 15, 20 years? Since the Art of Exceptional Living stayed in my car for 10 years. I listened to it every time I started the engine. And... I can't explain it. It's just compelling information about you that you listen to and you're going, mm-hmm. It's yeah, interesting, mm -hmm. though, that we're all massive Jim Rohn fans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Massive. We've listened combined. You know, I'm, thousands I'm you, of hours. You, oh. So, so to, I mean, all together, we're in the thousands of hours. What did Jim Rohn do? He told better stories, arguably, than anybody of his generation. When it came to this thing that you're not Earl Nightingale Jim Rohn. Yeah, yeah. Earl Nightingale Jim Absolutely magical. Absolutely magical. And he did it slowly. Very slowly. Which is why when you tell his him, pauses were genius. He, had, he, oh, he was yeah. so comfortable in the silence, which is why his vocal intonations also were genius. Yeah. Oh, he's. That's right. Yeah. right? So, <laughs> so he, when you tell a story. There's and Brad mentioned this. There's a I call it shared storytelling. But oftentimes, if you allow the silence to sit, they will finish it for you. And ideally, you want to feel like, it's almost like, to describe it, you are reading that child, that children's book to your child at night before they go to bed, and you say to them, what do you think happened next? And the child says, you're like, yes. You can do that with audiences. And when you do, everybody feels like there's this community of people walking the same path. And that's how you have really transformative, magical moments. But you got to allow that silence to be there. What do you think happened next? Let me throw something at you that absolutely infuriates me. 
the speaker will stand up on the stage and go, that reminds me of a story. I want to punch that guy in the face with a shovel because he's bullshitting and lying. <laughs> just tell it. <laughs> yeah, just tell the story. And then What reminded you of that story was that it was in your script. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another speaker, and I don't want to mention any names because whatever, but he's, he would he's saying, look, what I do is I make a point and then I tell a story. That's bullshit. Aesop, thousands of years ago, told a story and then made a point. Yeah. And so when, this, when a guy has it backwards and he's like talking about it to hundreds of people, I'm like, no, that's not how I wanted to like stand up and scream. Well, that led the story made the point. Yeah, every time. And I gave a talk one time at the National Speakers Association at their foundation thing. Um, and I said, you know, people will tell you, turn your story, turn your speech into a book. I said, let me be the first one to tell you, your speech is not that good. And, <laughs> See, I, and I'm seeing people on the, like scrambling on the wall, screaming. So sometimes, and, and I'm gonna throw a different thing in here. I teach, when I teach people to be uh, speakers, uh, I'm more teaching our coaches to be facilitators and moderators and teachers in a smaller setting where it's a workshop environment, right? And so I teach them about the, the micro, the macro and the story. And you can start or end in any one of those as long as you find common ground. Common ground is the key to the learning actually happening. And in, in some scenarios, we will play a game or do an activity that is the common ground that then we can pull the lessons from. Marcus is great with common ground. He puts up photos of his things, his old website, and it's a common ground. Everyone can look at it and go, Oh, oh yeah, I true. have that on my side. Or, yeah. Oh, I don't have that stuff on mine. So when you're looking at building, uh, and you know, big fancy word, the syntax of learning and building upon, because the learning has to build upon, and that's why I go back to Bucky Fuller taught, you, you create models and artifacts. If you're going to teach, give me a model. The six steps of that, the five rings of, the three ways of this, like, and that's, all I've ever done, every single book is this, the, the X number of whatevers, okay? But that, that syntax of going, here's the macro, here's the big picture point of view of marketing. Here's the micro, uh, your Facebook post of today. Here's the story. And then going into the audience, and I, I'll often just grab someone's phone and say, show me your Instagram. Great. Here's what your Instagram currently shows. It's beautiful photos of women who got their hair cut. Fantastic, okay? Now, let me scroll across to other angles of the photo. Oops, can't do that. There's only one photograph. There's no scroll across and see the before and after photo. Oops, there's no offer at the end on my scroll as my go across. And so the common ground is this lady's thing. It gives me a story. There's it gives no the video macro and the micro. saying this is the best haircut I've ever had. Yeah, there's no testimonial from her. There's no video of her going, oh, I love my hairdresser, James. He's the best in the world. You know, these are the things that can be done, but by telling a story and, and helping, I, I like giving people a structure to say, okay, you want to be the macro in, your, in the whole thing. What's the micro of it? What's the story? And then give me some common ground so that when you're building your speech, and I, I'm a flip chart guy most of the time, 
and I just put one word up. And from that one word, the whole thing comes to it. And so sometimes, Jeffrey, I'll flip the word over first and teach from the word. Mm -hmm. Other times I'll tell the whole story and then flip the word over and do the reveal. So yeah. I'm, I'm both a forward and backward teacher in, in that way, depending upon the circumstance and depending upon the lesson. But you're also genuine. Oh, yeah. And you're sincere. And when you see another presenter and he or she is not genuine or not sincere, you immediately check them off in the back of your head. You write two words down, I win, and you leave the well, speech. When they're trying to go outside their realm of, of capability, too, you see a lot of them that try and do a speech that's not their natural, and you go, hang on, that's not your natural thing. Right. I, I love the fact that I, I just... This is what I do. Right. I'm not teaching you a theory. I'm just showing you this is what we did when we had this business and we had to do this thing. And so I think by telling those stories, and that's where the naturalness of yours is that this is my business, this is where we were, and everyone relates to that. That's what I think the, the one thing of, of being with him on tour is that everyone's like, Marcus is the nicest guy in the world. That yeah. sugars, he's an arrogant prick. Yeah. If only I had you there, then I would look <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I just need to bring Jeffrey on to him more often. <laughs> this is the challenge, though. You read Dale Carnegie's two world-changing books, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And if you understand the underlying thread and theme that runs through both of those books, it's two words. Be yourself. And most speakers are not. Mm. They try to be somebody like I'm walking Trying the audience. Smart. Wait a minute. Talk about I'm it. working the I'm walking the audience. You? You walking the audience? Yes, Always. Of course you have to. Because it puts you in touch with those people. And the people that don't like it, fuck them. They, they don't they're not gonna like anything. They came into the meeting all pissed off, they're gonna be all pissed off in the meeting, they're gonna leave all Sat in that off. back corner, they're taking sniper shots at oh, you. Totally. <laughs> I don't care about those people. Yeah. I, I preach to the to the choir that understands and wants to do better. The people that are angry, I can't I can't help them. Did you ever, when you were young in speaking, actually, sorry, you were never young in speaking. Um, did you, when you were young in speaking, <laughs> you blunder? You blunder. <laughs> but I remember when I was young in speaking, and when someone would get up to leave the room, my eyes would just follow them, and it was like. Uh, no! It's like falling to the car crash because then everyone else turns around and looks at them. Nowadays, like as you, as you learn, it's like if someone gets up to go to the bathroom, you look in the opposite direction so that there's no focus on that right. sort of thing. It's That's like I had to learn those things. I, didn't, I never cared. I, mm. I'm, I'm giving my best. Yeah. If somebody gets it, you know, sit down and, and play. Um, if you don't like it, I, there's nothing. But I that's can do the. That. But what you said, that quality is very rare, Jeffrey, today, because we live in a society where the uh, approval of yeah. others is such a big deal, and because of that, so many are not producing content. They're not producing their art. They're afraid to be judged. Whereas you've mm. got this thing about you that's like. I don't care. Right, There's exactly. so many business owners that won't do content yeah. because they're afraid they be to judged. be in front of a video. They're afraid they to get judged. that negative stuff. They're afraid of that stuff. Remember, it's not that I love that stuff. It's not yeah. that they're afraid of video. They don't want to be judged. Yeah. That's what's happening. There's an insecurity that is just rampant. And it's like we got to this point where we want everyone to like us. And that is not how you stand out. But it's very hard to teach. 
It's very hard to get someone to the point where they're willing to let that 3 or that 5% go. I will tell you this. I learned how to sell in New York City. <laughs> we, we had no well, idea. We had no idea. Who would have guessed that? <laughs> but in New York City, fuck you is a greeting, and everybody went to bribe. <laughs> and so you can sell millions of dollars worth of stuff in that environment. You learn yeah. the science of selling and engagement, and you learn how to... 20 seconds engage somebody intellectually and, and challenge them. So if somebody's not getting into my audience, I don't care. Because I I didn't been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I've been there, done that, and made the million dollar sale to a Fortune 500 company CEO. And and when you've done that, and and you've had that great experience and that feeling of doing it, you can you can talk to an audience about it and, and be certain that what you're saying is true because it's been my experience not my theory. See, this is where I started, though. He's not worried about how he looks in front of his audience in terms of, I don't, I can't. I don't care if, I don't, I don't <laughs> care how you feel about me. I don't care if you think I'm smart or dumb because he is so confident in his lived experience that he's let all that go. You get to that place, you're, you're in a really, really healthy place. Um, and I guess. be careful. I'm having a good time. I'm, I'm oh, going to have fun so with that bad. audience regardless of the uh, circumstance. Yeah. Guys, go some quick questions for you. Right. Oh, rapid fire? Is that what this is? Quite, quite rapid. Let's see. Let's see how rapid this. <laughs> None of us could give a rapid fire answer. Let's Come be honest. Not our specialty there. <laughs> What's your favorite quote? Uh, oh, jeez. Uh, I'm getting in first because I'm going yeah. with Jim Rohn. Oh. Never wish your life were easier. Wish that you were better. So I drop your face. Like I'm out of it. I've got. I had to get it because I knew you were both going to go somewhere near there. Um, go ahead, Jeffrey. I'm, I grew up in Philadelphia. But in Atlantic City, where I lived, I lived across the street from a baseball player named Benny Bengoff, who is the number one card in the 1933 Gowdy Series, the most expensive card. He became a coach for the Phillies. And at the end, he gave the show, the wrap-up show, at the end of a baseball game in the 50s and the 60s. And he ended every show with something that, I've, that I have lived with forever. To be a big leaguer, think big league. Holy. And at first, you don't get it. But 30 years into your life, you're going, yeah. oh my God, Benny Bengoff just gave me the key to success. It's another role on that, isn't it? If you want to attract attractive people, you better be attractive. Exactly. Yeah, just there's so many. That's my problem. I have too many. One that I was thinking about from where we started, Mark Twain, never let your schooling in the way of your education. Bingo. That is so good. I was going to say that. <laughs> Shakespeare. To be or not to be. To be <laughs> successful or not be successful. Uh, to be great, to not be great. To be or not to be is a great question. Or, no, no, the, the better one is the, it's ands, not or, right? That's yeah. the... Hey. It's a good you, book like that. Yeah, Brad says it casually in conversation. I'm going... Right. That was supposed to be quick fire. It was quick-ish. All right. Yeah. It's as quick as you can get three speakers right. to do it. All right. Yeah. Best leadership trait. What is it? Set the standard, not the example. Um, uh, I would say discovery questions, the ability to ask discovery questions. Ability to ask questions. Best leadership trait. Visionary. See what isn't and help people believe that it can be. Best management style. Systemic. I don't even know how to answer that. You know, like style. I, I would just. What the best? What's the best manager do? Um, 
I would say makes their their team becomes greater than they were when they got there, whatever that means. Be one notch better than everyone you've employed. If you're in sales and a sales manager, you better be able to go out and make a sale in front of the salesperson where the customer said no to the salesperson, but you are able to get a yes. You become a rumor in the company in one second. Yeah, the problem though these days, most sales managers aren't actually sales trainers. Well, they don't do any sales That's anymore. That's a problem. They don't do any sales They're anymore. Pipeline analyzers. If you're a sales manager, it's you a need whole conversation, to be. Though, isn't it? Uh, right? <laughs> the sales manager should take all of the highest value customers. They should have that top five, ten, twenty percent of customers. The sales manager must run those accounts. That's. I had a Fortune 500 company say to me. We don't hire sales managers who can sell. We just hire sales managers that can manage. And I said, I, you don't need me. It blows my mind. I don't, don't understand. You don't need me. It makes that whole philosophy makes no sense to me. And then if, they wonder why they're spinning their wheels. If you're a sales And they're person, losing salespeople. That's right. can, uh, if, you, if you're a salesperson and you can't go to your manager and have him or her make a sale for you or help you make a sale... You're never going to talk to that person. This is why gonna... role plays are a lost art yeah, in yeah, society. Because they can't even do them. What's my sales manager do? They look over my numbers. That's, yeah. what, that's what they do. They, they review check my, my CRM. They check my CRM to see my activity. It's a joke. <laughs> so whenever any of my salespeople have a challenge, like, get me on the phone with them. Apparently yeah. Get me on the phone with them. Apparently we need to have a podcast with the problem of sales management. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was thinking one, that. one of my first challenges when leading a sales meeting was I said, okay, what, what's your biggest problem? So I can't, oh, get yeah. anybody, I can't get anybody on the phone. I said, really? Um, give me a number. The guy looks at this thing, gives me a number. I go, hi, is Bob there? Yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's a business matter of a personal nature. And hi, this is Bob. I go, here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling you, it is a mind blower yeah. to a sales team. But Jeffrey, that's not the way it works. Right. Yeah, bullshit. Guys, guys. Okay, okay so next question. Last question. question. If the listeners... Were to take three tips from you on getting audience engagement, what are your three tips? Tell the truth. Don't be incorrect. Be passionate. Yeah, become a master storyteller. Along with that, learn how to ask questions more effectively than anyone in your space. And I'll, I'll finish where I started. Speak exactly at their level. Don't ever make them feel like you feel you're the authority. Those six. Yeah. <laughs> now I got to throw three more in. Come okay. on, you can do it. Um, communicate in the way they want to be communicated with. That's if cool. I if I text you, text me back. If I email you, email me back. If I make an, I don't want a phone call if I've sent you an email. Yeah. Um, second is allow me to consume in my way. I guess that's the same thing, only different. Mm -hmm. Allow me to consume and uh, allow me to buy without having to talk to a salesperson. Yeah, there's a lot of value in that. Be funny. I forgot that. That's, that's the 10 form for, yeah. for extra value. Okay. Yeah. I, nine and a half if you go by the red, little red yeah, book yeah, method. Well, Jeffrey's trademarked. He's trademarked the half. Do you know... I was consulting for somebody who's a leadership speaker 
It did its whole thing on time management, which I think is the biggest waste of time <laughs> in the planet. There's an all-day course in time management. <laughs> but I said, he wanted to do a thing on leadership, and I said, well, let's, I, I'm going to give you the, I'll write the speech for you, and it's eight points of leadership, and point five is commitment. 8.5 is your commitment to all the other things. And he goes, I don't like it. I said, okay, great, I'll use it. So I was willing to sell it for 100 bucks, and, that, and, and I've made a fortune, literally made a fortune, millions and millions of dollars as a result of 0.5 or whatever the ending thing was. Beautiful. Jeffrey Gettman, thank you very much. Brad Sugars, thank you very much. And Max Sheridan. That was fun. Thank you very much. Thanks, James. Thank you, James.